We finished up a series last week talking about Thanksgiving, not the holiday, but a spirit of Thanksgiving and how we cultivate that spirit in our lives. And then this week we're going to start a new series just over the next three weeks as we head into the Christmas holidays and the holiday season, although I'm sure for some of you, the holiday season has been in full swing. You probably started November 1st, uh, and uh, you know maybe you took a break for Thanksgiving Day. Some of you probably only took half a day for Thanksgiving Day because then you were shopping uh, the rest of the day. But for the rest of us, we are getting into the Christmas spirit and getting into the holiday spirit. And now that Thanksgiving has passed, it's no longer a sin to listen to Christmas music. So you're good on that front. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, you know, I've told you about the struggle in our house, and uh, sometimes I get painted as the uh, Scrooge, but I, I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. I, I love Christmas decorations. I love Christmas lights. I love Christmas presents. I loved, I, when I was a kid, I loved getting them a lot more. Uh, now with kids, I love giving them a lot more. I love Christmas movies. We watched Elf last night, uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies, and there's others. But uh, the other thing that I love around this time of year is Christmas music. You know, I talked with the kids and asked them what their favorite song is. I mean, from, you know, I'll Be Home for Christmas or um, There's No Place Like Home for the Holidays to, you know, what are some other silver bells and jingle bells and uh, white Christmas and blue Christmas and Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer and I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas and songs like that. Um, I, I love everything about Christmas, and including the Christmas songs. I'm not... I, just an admission, I, I, I get tired of the Lifetime movies, the Hallmark movies. Those grow a little. But I love everything about Christmas, and, and especially Christmas music. And, of course, this time of year, so many of the songs that we sing are about the birth of Jesus and our Lord and our Savior coming into this world. And so this week we're going to start a, a new series as we kind of think about that. And we're going to be in a passage of Scripture that kind of speaks to that, although it's not really one of the passages that you would think of that we typically associate with a Christmas carol or a Christmas hymn, but it does speak to what Jesus did for us in coming into this world and his heart for you and me in doing so. And so especially this time of year, we're going to close out the year as we head into the Christmas holidays by talking about how our amazing, awesome, all-powerful God humbled himself and came to this earth and became less so that you and I could truly have more. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Again, not necessarily one of your more prominent passages that you think about this time of year, but I think it has a lot to teach us nonetheless. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. <clears throat> your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And Christmas is yet another opportunity for you and I to humble ourselves and to bow down and to confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. And yet really getting Christmas and what Christmas is all about is also about understanding how he first came and he humbled himself and he bowed for you and for me. He, he humbled himself and he bowed for you, not only in the sense that he became a man, God became man, but that he became a servant, as Paul talks about here in this verse. And not only that he bow and he humbled himself in becoming a servant, but he came and he was treated as a criminal. And not only did, was he treated as a criminal, but he even was treated as the worst of criminals, dying a death that was reserved for the worst of the worst of criminals, dying on a cross. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. As one person put it, Christmas is really a way of marking the time in history when God took one long deep dive from the highest of places to the lowest of lows for you and for me. And that's really what Christmas is all about. The story of Jesus coming to this earth is really the story of how an all-powerful God took one big deep dive from the highest of places to the lowest of lows for you and for me. And the dive began at a very, very high place. I mean, you just think about what Paul says in verse six, that Jesus, though he was God, he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That word for grasp there, and I probably don't need to tell you this, but maybe it just helps to kind of frame your mind around this, literally means to cling to or to hold on to. And yet Jesus, you and I wouldn't have Christmas if we didn't have Jesus, one who was willing to not cling to, to not hold on to, but to let go for you and for me. You see, it's easy sometimes, I think, especially around this time of year, to think that the Christmas story began in a manger in Bethlehem, particularly this time of year. But the truth is, that's not where the story began. You see, Jesus doesn't really have a beginning. He always was, he is, and he always will be. And so the story doesn't begin in Bethlehem and a manger. Really began far, far before that. The Apostle John writes in John verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word. Not in the middle or somewhere along the line, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John later writes in verse 14, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The writer of Hebrews comes along in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says that it's through Jesus that God made the entire universe. You know, sometimes we forget the fact that God spoke it into existence, but that Jesus was right there with him in the very beginning when God created the entire universe. Jesus was present at creation. And then the Hebrew writer tells his own story of Jesus coming into this world in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 5, when he says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. This is what Jesus says to the Father before he ever sets foot on the earth. And both these passages in John and in, in, in Hebrews remind us that Jesus doesn't begin in Bethlehem. He simply relocates to Bethlehem. But it was small, no small relocation. It was a dive from a very high place. You know, during this time of year, a lot of us, between the Thanksgiving holidays and the Christmas holidays. Some of you traveled for Thanksgiving. Many of you are going to be traveling for Christmas. Marcy and I and our family will be heading down to Georgia for Christmas. 
And, and so we're doing a lot of traveling. And I was watching a show not too long ago, one of the shows that I watch, and uh, a fictional show. But in the show, this, this foreign, I can't remember if it was a prince or a diplomat, but he was coming to America. It wasn't the movie, but he was coming to America. And it was amazing, this entourage that he brought with him. I mean, he's got cars, he's got vehicles, he's got people all around him, security, he's got all of these things that he's bringing with him because nobody travels like royalty, right? It reminds me of a story that I I read about Queen Elizabeth II when she came over from England and visited the States several, several years ago and just the, the amount of stuff that she brought with her, the kind of things that came along with her. 4,000 pounds of luggage. Man, that's a, nowadays to fly with that much. You think about the bill on that. Enough outfits for two, or enough for two outfits for every occasion. Funeral outfits in case someone important died while she was here. 40 pints of plasma in case of an accident. Her own leather toilet seat covers, got to have those. Her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of attendants, just to name a few things. Her visit cost the British Empire somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million. That's, that's an expensive trip. Not much is left behind when royalty travels, except for Jesus. He let go of so much, refused to grasp for equality with God and really getting Christmas and really grasping what it is that Jesus did for us in coming to earth has something to do with appreciating what it is that he just refused to hang on to, what it is he released, what it is he let go of. In our passage in verse 7, Paul says that he made himself nothing. And I don't know if that truly captures everything. There's other translations that say he gave up, one translation in particular, it says he gave up his divine privileges. But really in the Greek, the, the phrase there is he emptied himself. The very Son of God emptied himself for you and for me. And in coming as he did, he emptied himself of, of some things. So I just want to give you two in particular, because as Arlene already told us, less is more. So I'll try to stay a little bit more compact. But let me give you two. The first one is this. I think he emptied himself of his boundlessness. It's kind of ironic, some are more than others, but it's kind of ironic that we celebrate Christmas in such big ways, right? Big presents, big parties, big outfits, big ugly Christmas sweaters, big, um, you know, lights, big decorations, and that's all good and well. It's all good stuff. I, I love it all. And yet it's so polar opposite to how Jesus, the Son of God, entered into this world because he enters this world so small. One of the most amazing, almost mind blowing things is that this abundant, boundless, infinite God became so bound and so small to the point that he was a tiny embryo inside a Jewish teenage girl's womb. That's what your God did for you. He's that bound. That's how Jesus enters, makes his entrance into this world. The boundless one becomes that bound and that condensed. He came into the world the same way that you did and that I did. Philip Yancey puts it this way, kind of an interesting take. He says, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who couldn't speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenage couple for shelter and food 
and love. And he gave up his boundlessness in in so many ways, just some of the things to, to think about. For starters, he, choosed, he chose to be bound by a less than ideal reputation. The whole time he's in Mary, Mary's womb, there's no telling the rumors that are going around as to how Mary got pregnant. After all, an angel has to come to her own husband-to-be, Joseph, and explain to, her, or explain to him, hey, God's got a hand in this, okay? You just need to trust God. And, and, and so Joseph has to have explained explain to him because he's ready to give her away quietly. It shows you how good of a man he was. But he's still willing to, ready to give her away and, and push her away because he thought maybe she had this baby out of wedlock. And you can just imagine all the rumors that are flying around as Jesus is in her womb, as Jesus is growing up. And yet this, this God was willing to be bound by a less than ideal reputation. He also chose to be bound by a lack of resources. The king of kings and lord of lords wasn't born in a palace with silk sheets and a nice warm crib. He was born in a manger and laid in a feeding trough. There were probably more animals that witnessed his birth than humans. Think about that for a second. He was also bound by a lack of rights. You know the story, King Herod didn't even think that Jesus had a right to live. He went on this massive child hunt to try and take away not only Jesus's life, but every baby that was born around that time. And so the first years of Jesus's life were spent on the run in a foreign country in Egypt from a self-absorbed, maniac, paranoid king. Jesus had no military protection. He had no civil rights. He had no political representation. God chose to be protectionless, rightless, and resourceless in Jesus. In many ways, he entered this world so opposite from how we would expect the king of the universe to enter in with the deck stacked against him, at least by the world's standards and bound in so many ways. But not only did he empty himself of his boundlessness, but the second thing, and probably the more important thing, is he emptied himself of his spotlessness. Everything that Jesus would be bound by on this earth was nothing compared to what he would be bound to on the cross. The prophet Isaiah says this of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul puts it a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And maybe for some, it feels like we're getting ahead of ourselves to this Christmas time talk about the cross, right? After all, everybody's focus is on the manger. It's on the baby. And yet even the angels don't allow us the luxury of celebrating Jesus's birth without reminding us that he was sent to go to a cross, do you remember what the, what the angel tells uh, Joseph in Matthew chapter 1? He says, you are to give him the name Jesus. You're going to have a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus. Why Jesus? Because Jesus means that he will save his people from their sins. And the way he would save us from our sins is by, us giving, by giving us his spotlessness, taking our stain onto him and allowing us to have his spotlessness 
You know, some of you went out shopping for Black Friday looking for deals. That was the original Black Friday at the cross so that you and I could have the deal of a lifetime. When I think about Jesus giving up his boundlessness and his spotlessness, it adds all the more power to what Andrew read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Boundless, spotless, and yet he emptied himself of those things. He became poor so that you and me through his poverty might become rich. So what does it mean for my life and for your life when we think about Jesus emptying himself? Well, let me just give you three things as we kind of close out our time this morning. First, I think it means because he emptied himself, it shows us how desperate our situation is. Sometimes we lose sight of this living in the culture that we live in, living in the the blessings that we get to experience. But realizing that he emptied himself and what he gave up makes me realize how desperate my situation is. When I, when I really consider everything Jesus let go of, when I truly come to grips with what he gave up, it ought to make me realize how desperate my sin and my sinfulness and my situation truly has put me in. For Jesus to give up everything he gave up, including his own life, means I must be in a desperate situation. Think about this. Sometimes you don't know how sick you are until you realize the treatment you need to cure or to work with the disease or the sickness that you have. The fact that some people, some of you, many of you either have experienced this or gone, had someone close to you that you loved gone through this. The fact that some people have to resort to burning and poisoning their bodies with chemotherapy and radiation tells you how serious the cancer is. The fact that that some people have to resort to someone else giving them a lung or a kidney shows you how serious that situation is. The fact that a diabetic risks amputation because of certain things going on because of the disease tells you how serious the situation is. Some of you maybe have dealt with this. to think about the seriousness of the situation of an addict and everything that they're going to, how they have to go through treatment and the extreme lengths they have to go through in those treatments tells you how serious the situation is. The radical nature of the solution tells you how serious the situation is. And the radical lengths that Jesus went to and all that he gave up tells me how desperate my situation is. The more you realize what he gave up. And you don't think he explored other options? I mean, you think about in the garden, what's he doing? He's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? Can can there be any other way? He's exploring all of his options. If there was another option rather than giving up his boundlessness and his spotlessness for you and for me, don't you think he would have done it? And yet he did it for you and for me. The extreme lengths he went to and what he gave up tells me how desperate my situation is and how much I need the salvation that only he can offer, how much I need the sacrifice that only he can give. And the terrible irony of our day and our age is that so many of us are killing ourselves for achievement and for possessions and for things that we think we can't live without. And yet the one thing we can't truly live without, we kind of treat as a luxury item to be passed around 
a cute nativity scene that we put out as a decoration, maybe a star, an angel on our tree to remind us. And yet, this is something we can't live without. And yet we treat it as a luxury item. We've got things upside down, or as Tony Campolo wrote a whole book, I'm not going to read you the whole book, but he says somebody switched the price tags on us. And the things that are most important that, that we ought to value so often get passed over for other things that just don't have the same importance. I think about a song that we so often sing, one of those normal Christmas hymns we sing around this time of year, and we'll probably sing it over the next couple of weeks. Joy to the world, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We get caught up in the tune, and the tune's great, but sometimes we miss the line, let every heart prepare him room. It's not just about singing the song, it's about understanding what his coming means for you and for me and how desperate my situation is. And so because he emptied himself, I've got to come to grips with how desperate my situation is. Secondly, not only does it remind us how desperate our situation is, but I think also because he emptied himself, it reminds us how loved we are. You know, your, your situation is desperate, but that also tells you how much God loves you, that he sent his son to redeem you, to bring you out of that desperate situation. You know, when you're young, one of the things that we do when we're young, hopefully we grow out of this, but one of the things you do when you're young is you evaluate how much someone loves you by how much they give you, right? When you're a little kid, how much they give you, and you probably Maybe don't wrap your mind around all of your parents, what they do, but they are right there and you see how much they give and how much they do for you. And, and that's all good and well, but hopefully as we get older, we start to realize and we come to a better understanding that it's not so much someone showing their love by how much they give us, but someone shows us their love by how much they give up for us. And when you understand how much someone gives up for you, you understand the extent of their love for you. John sums it up this way in 1 John chapter 3. says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave up something for you. He gave up his life. And it's easy to think that Jesus laying down his life and giving up his life began at the cross, but the fact is it began long, long before the cross. It began when he accepted his assignment in heaven. And then lastly, because he emptied himself, it calls us to empty ourselves. The whole passage in this passage in Philippians chapter two begins with this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we are never more like Jesus, our Lord, than when we refuse to act as though we are Lord's. But we choose to act as servants as he did. Think about this. <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve choose to attempt to grasp equality with God by choosing to come out from underneath the authority of God and by doing something that God told them not to do. Jesus, on the other hand, refuses to grasp equality with God, even though by very nature he is God, and instead he chooses to submit his will to the Father and do the hardest thing that God asks him to do, to go to a cross and to die. The story of my sin, and yours too, is me grasping for a godlike status. 
That, that, that is the story of your sin and my sin, is all of us grasping to be like God, grasping for control, grasping for what we want in our lives, grasping to have it our way. That's the story of my sin, and yet the story of my salvation is Jesus refusing not to. All the while we're grasping for this and grasping for that, we want to be the God of our own lives and the God of our own universe. Who are you to tell me what to do? Don't judge me. All of those things that we use is our attempt to grasp for the status of God. And yet Jesus, who was in very nature God, saved me because he chose not to. In my sin, I'm choosing to grasp for the status of God, even though I'm nowhere close. And Jesus, who is very nature of God, chose not to. Instead, he makes himself less. He humbles himself. He comes to this earth, treated as the worst of criminals, dies on a cross for you and for me. And you and me really getting Christmas and getting what Jesus coming to this earth is all about is learning to live less in the first story and more in the second story. It's choosing to live less in the story of trying to grasp equality with God and more in the story of refusing to strive for equality with God and instead to submit myself to him and to his will, to empty myself for him because he first emptied himself for me. You know, it's interesting. When you look at all the details of the Christmas story, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we celebrate it and we sing it and we know the story, but when you think about it from an earthly perspective, why? That doesn't make any sense. And yet when you dig a little deeper and you understand the gospel story and not just the Christmas story, you see how the Christmas story truly is a demonstration and a statement of God's love for us because ultimately it speaks of sacrifice. It speaks of a cost that was paid. It speaks of a God who had the world at his fingertips. In fact, created the world, (laughs) had the world at his feet. And yet he left the throne room of heaven and he came to this earth not to be born in prominence and privilege, but into poverty, to be born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. And you say, why? That doesn't make any sense. And yet, it makes perfect sense if you understand the heart of the God that you and I serve and celebrate. Because he did it so that he could answer the question, how far would God go to show his love for you and for me? He chose to come into this world the way he did. He chose to give up all that he did. He chose to live the way he did. And ultimately, he chose to die the way he did so that you and I would understand just how far he would go to show his love for us. He became less so that you and I could have so much more than we could ever dream or imagine. And I'm not just talking about Christmas time, but every single day and for all of eternity.